Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. In October 2016, the World War I Historical Association hosted a World War I Centennial Symposium at the MacArthur Memorial. The symposium focused on the year 1916. The following is a presentation by Dr. Paul Jankowski, the Ray Ginger Professor of History at Brandeis University and the author of Verdun, The Longest Battle of the Great War. Dr. Jankowski gave a lecture on the topic, Verdun After 100 Years, An Iconic or Exceptional Battle. Uh, well, I... Um chose as a title of, of Verdun, uh, Verdun after a hundred years, uh, an iconic or, or, a, um, or an exceptional battle. And I suppose after a hundred years, one can indeed ask that question. And I suppose um, at one level, everyone here would answer it the same way. In some ways, Verdun was iconic. Uh, it represented more than itself, uh, while uh, in other ways, it was, um, uh, it was unusual. It was its own kind sui generis, if you, if you will. And others have been trying to establish in what ways it was unique, what, or, or what, what did it represent, if anything, what, in what ways was it larger than itself. If Auschwitz is the uh, symbol, rightly or wrongly, uh, of the Holocaust, and Hiroshima of the nuclear uh, uh, apocalypse, uh, then Verdun often has become the kind of symbol of the futility of industrial war, uh, and uh, that's one way. Uh, others, more precisely, want to make Verdun the symbol of the uh, great attritional battles of the Western Front uh, without really explaining why Verdun, more than the Somme, for example, should uh, uh, enjoy that, um, uh, that dubious honor. Uh, and uh, others, on the other hand, want to insist that Verdun was unique. It was not symbolic of anything other than of itself. It, it, they would look to its topography, the infernal landscape of Verdun, the ravines, the, uh, the, the volcanic uh, suggestion, uh, the hell of Verdun. Uh, and um, the, uh, all of those would be right in some way. Everybody, each, each of those interpretations or renditions uh, are right, and there are others. Uh, so that, I think, is what I'd like to, um, like to talk about uh, today, the various ways in which this battle has been rendered. Uh, it's generated a rich crop of myths, more perhaps than any other battle of this, uh, of this war. Uh, most of them began during the battle itself, in newspaper accounts in France, in Germany, and, uh, 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 and elsewhere, among the men themselves, in uh, deliberations of the high commands, uh, and they lived on for nearly a century before slowly beginning to die off and to expire uh, in our own time. Uh, and these myths, and I'm using this word to explain, these, I, by myths I do not mean lies. I do, I do not mean inventions or, fabric or deception. They represent the ways in which um, uh, contemporaries and posterity tried to understand this battle. And they may superficially distort the realities. In fact, they nearly always do. But uh, just as surely they reveal truths of a different order, and they call on the historian to give each its due to restore the facts and to um, uh, respect the, uh, the legend. So uh, battles that uh, gain immortality, it seems to me, uh, usually um, do so by the way they end, 
by the uh, sun breaking through the clouds at the Pratzen Heights at Austerlitz or the Imperial Guard giving way at uh, Waterloo or its charge falling short at Gettysburg. But at Verdun, it's the beginning of the battle that dominated all the retellings. Uh, and that's the, uh, the unprecedented deluge of, um, of artillery shells concentrated within eight hours, followed by an odd, rather tentative infantry assault uh, by the uh, German units, uh, and then the kind of French reaction uh, in extremis, uh, uh, saving the situation. Now here, here's a document, and this is a document from a neutral power, written in uh, May 1916. It's a report by the um, American military attaché in, in Switzerland, I believe, actually, uh, telling his government, the, the U.S. is now neutral, this is 1916, what he thinks is going on at Verdun. So we're several months into the battle, and this is uh, May 1st, so the battle began on the 21st of February. He's having a very difficult time uh, telling his government just what is going on. He gives details, and many of them are surprisingly accurate, but he um, is not able to say what it's all about. Now, I don't think you can read this, but in the, um, in the first paragraph, he says uh, the, assailants, the assailants show uh, no signs of letting up and seem as determined as ever to attain the goal they have set themselves. Exactly what this is has been the subject of much discussion. And then on the second page, he, he refers to, um, I'm sorry, in the second paragraph, he, um, he refers to whatever may be the causes urging them on. And that um, discussion that he refers to about why is this happening has gone on ever since. After the war, the legend of Moloch established itself. Moloch, the um, god or demon of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, um, to whom the Canaanites were supposed to have sacrificed their children. And the, uh, the chief of the German general staff, Erich von Falkenhayn, uh, himself launched this legend after the war uh, in an article which he published in 1919 and then in his memoirs in 1920. There he claimed not to have even wanted to take Verdun. He said he had no intention of ever uh, taking this. That was irrelevant to him. Uh, he intended, he said, to bleed the French army white. This was an army that he believed wrongly, but he believed to be uh, on the verge of exhaustion. Calculated, so he said, that it would rush in to defend the um, ancient fortress town on the Meuse River in eastern France, only to lose itself in the ravines uh, under the devastating uh, fire of his long-range artillery, in which the Germans had an important superiority. Uh, and as evidence of this, he gave the text of a memorandum he was supposed to have written to the Kaiser on Christmas Eve, 1915, so a couple of months earlier, a couple of months before he launched the offensive. In the text that he gave in his memoirs of that memorandum, he said that this he purported to have set forth uh, that uh, monstrous attritional thinking leading the French army white. He, this is after the war. During the war itself, there wasn't much talk of that being the German design, but still I found, you can find some versions of this. Here is something from a German satirical weekly. This is during the battle itself. Uh, and it does show, without using the word Moloch, something like a Moloch-like monster, with the French supposedly marching to their doom. And of course, this is about, this is about Verdun. The, uh, that legend, which he himself essentially created after the war, 
stuck. And by then, right after the war, another legend had grown up, and this one was drawn not from scripture, but from classical antiquity. Uh, it's the, um, the legend of Thermopylae. And, uh, this is the, the, the defile, the plain on, uh, not the defile, it's a, the plain in ancient Greece between the mountains on one side and the sea on the other, where the uh, archetypal defensive battle of all times took place in 480 BCE. And this legend of the defensive battle, this is the legend the French seized on, on their side, and they used it to depict their own battle uh, with themselves as the Spartans and the Germans as the Persian imperial invaders. It's the legend of the outnumbered French uh, rushing in to defend the access to the the heartland of the Republic against the imperial invader, the powerful imperial host. Uh, And in fact, this wasn't the first time that this legend of Thermopylae had actually been evoked in this part of France. In uh, 1792, uh, the French general, revolutionary general, uh, Dumouriez, while maneuvering against the uh, then Prussian invaders, used precisely that, um, that term, this is the, the Algon uh, in 1792, and he wrote uh, in one of his dispatches to Paris that Argonne, this is the Thermopylae of France. The, um, and in fact, that, that was rather popular in revolutionary France at the time. Uh, neighborhoods were named. This is a district in Grenoble, and uh, they renamed it Thermopylae, Thermopylae. The revolutionaries are very fond of these allusions to classical antiquity, but it's the idea of the republic. Uh, defending itself against all odds uh, against the um, tyrannical, uh, the, uh, the tyrannical uh, in, uh, invaders. This uh, legend, if you like, now returned in February 1916 when a uh, famous French novelist, Maurice Barres, used it again when writing about the Battle of Verdun in a um, French newspaper called the, the Echo de Paris. He said once again, uh, that these, this, is the, this region, this is the, the, uh, the Thermopylae of France. Uh, General Pétain, who was by then the uh, commander of the French Second Army, which was the Army of Verdun, in charge of the defense of the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the region, took up the image himself a couple of months uh, after that. And that legend stuck. So when Falkenhayn put out his legend of Moloch, the French happily added it on to their own heroic Thermopylae, that was after the war. During the battle itself, the French thought no such thing. If you read their accounts of this, they believed, or many of them believed, that the Germans were not just staging some type of attritional battle in which Verdun itself didn't, didn't matter. They felt the Germans were in deadly earnest about trying to take this, uh, this site. Uh, and in fact, General Delacroix, who had once been a uh, part of the French high command before the war and who was the military correspondent of the established French newspaper Le Temps, uh, told an American newsman, Frank Simons, that he felt that Verdun, that the parallels between Verdun and between Gettysburg were inescapable, uh, that he saw in the German attack on Verdun the last bid of the Confederacy at Gettysburg in 1863, the last kind of throw of the dice, the desperate bid, So that that was during the battle itself. When Falkenhayn put forth his Moloch version, the French changed. They eagerly picked it up because it was not a very flattering one to the Germans, this this demon, this sanguinary ambition. Um, The French immediately picked it up themselves. 
So Gabriel Anotto is a famous uh, French historian, member of the Académie Française, in his Guide to the Battlefields of the First World War, which he published in 1920, uh, immediately established, immediately republished this as the, as, uh, as, the, uh, as the true version of what Falkenhayn had intended. Uh, and history books, novels, school books, movies, popular songs, and so on, uh, picked it up as well. Um, they recycle the image of Falkenhayn Moloch uh, as recently as a televised documentary in France a few years ago. Now, when you think of it, these two legends don't fit at all well together. The legend of Moloch and the legend of Thermopylae are, in fact, incompatible. That, that of Moloch um, sees the defenders, uh, the French defenders, uh, decimated as they hurl themselves at the wall of the invaders. And that of Thermopylae, the French legend, sees the invaders decimated as they hurl themselves at the wall of the defenders. Uh, the two just don't go together. But nobody, that didn't bother anybody for decades. Uh, for a long time, no one worried about that. And no one worried either about the authenticity of Falkenhayn's supposed um, Christmas memorandum in which he said he had set forth this, this way of thinking. Um, that memo was never found. Uh, by the archivists after the war, and nor has it ever been found since, for the very good reason that he never wrote it. And it appears, it's pretty clear to me at any rate, that Falkenhayn did not even start talking about attrition until several weeks into this offensive when he realized that his initial designs had failed. Now, what were those initial designs? About this, historians still differ, and I, I don't want to... Uh, get into that lengthy debate here. In, in, in my opinion, he was indeed, as he claimed, trying to provoke a French response. Uh, but it wasn't just a response by the French, and it wasn't just at Verdun. He wanted to, he wanted to provoke responses all over the Western Front, uh, up, and down the, uh, up and down the line between the North Sea and the, uh, and the Swiss border. Uh, and he, in, in the hope, he thought of restoring a war of movement that he felt the British were too inexperienced and the French too exhausted to fight. Uh, he was a realistic general. He realized time was against Germany. He wanted to get something going. In any case, nothing allows one to think that as, a, as astute and realistic general, even a skeptical general, uh, could um, believe, really believe that he could end the war uh, by investing a town with no strategic significance with really a very moderate, very modest uh, uh, infantry force. Uh, he, uh, on the 21st of February, in the late afternoon, when his heavy guns either lengthened their fire or stopped firing altogether, uh, he committed only eight divisions to this supposedly war-ending offensive. Uh, and even those he committed very unwillingly and parsimoniously. Uh, but nothing allows one either to discern in the response of his French counterpart, General Joseph Joffre, the response of uh, Leonidas uh, uh, against the Persian immortals of Xerxes on the shores of ancient Greece. Um, Joffre indeed intended to win, but he didn't intend to win at Verdun. His eyes were fixed elsewhere on the front. They were fixed on the Somme, the coming offensive on the Somme, um, where he wanted the decision to take place, together with other Allied offensives by the Russians and by the, uh, by the Italians. He only agreed to defend Verdun to weaken the adversary, tie, tie him down, uh, and to avoid the dangers of a national humiliation. So he committed as little as he possibly could to the defense of Verdun, 
uh, and he did so to hold off an adversary who himself declined to commit the bulk of his divisions there uh, and to risk his all. And with that, the inevitable happened. No one could prevail. And Verdun thus perpetuated itself, uh, becoming the longest battle of the war and one of the bloodiest in all history. But uh, no matter. The central myth of Verdun, to return to myths, is the myth of willpower. Here is a famous poster. This was a bond issue by the French, the um, appeal to um, buy government bonds. Uh, and it's uh, courage on les aura. So courage will we'll get them. Uh, it's the end of the, the last lines of a famous communique that General Pétain issued on the 10th of April after repulsing some German assaults on the, the hills to the north of the uh, north, north of the uh, of, of, of the of the city. They are actually the words of a famous music hall song of 1915, uh, on les aura, uh, and uh, reproduced here. Now, the historical allusion here could not be clearer. Uh, this is to the volunteers of 1792, uh, to the Fédéré, uh, to La Patrie en danger, uh, the country in danger. And uh, for, uh, for decades, the uh, novels and films on both sides of the Rhine uh, stubbornly elevated camaraderie and courage and willpower and resolve uh, above the din of the heavy guns. In his 1931 film, here, here's an example this is a film made by um, Léon Poirier, French filmmaker. He dwells on the first day of the battle. It was a silent movie in 1929, then released in a spoken version in 1931. And this shows how he portrays that first day. Uh, now, if you notice, printed off here, but he's dwelling on the German technical superiority, the heavy guns, the German technology. On the French side, it's the peasant in his cottage the shell landing through the roof of the cottage, and the peasant actually looking at his hunting rifle as though that's going to, someone going to pick up his hunting rifle and respond in that way. It's a, a definite attempt to uh, oppose the French willpower to the German uh, automaton. Um, the, um, and this would be a dominant popular motif of the way the French would write about this in their legends, in their retelling of this battle uh, uh, after the war. French bodies against German shells, sheer willpower. Uh, now, the same year, 1931, the German uh, filmmaker uh, Heinz Paul, in his movie um, uh, Duomont, Die Hölle von Verdun, Duomont, which is the name of the famous fort there, uh, the, hell of, uh, the hell of Verdun, uh, he, told, he took the same day. And here, you notice that he deals with the massive German artillery preparation in a brief written excerpt of a uh, few seconds. But he prefers to dwell on the soldiers themselves, and that what would go on here is the soldiers sort of champing at the bit to leave their trenches. Um, it's again the human element. Uh, and here he tries not to insist upon the German technical means. He tries not to insist upon the German artillery, but he insists on the human resolve of the soldiers, their aggressive spirit, and, and the night before, their, uh, their anxiety. And this theme of ardor, of human ardor, kept coming up in the, um, in the German retellings of the battle uh, when they began to appear in the 1920s. Now, of course, the Nazis, when they came along, would seize on this to celebrate the Aryan blood coursing through the veins of the ordinary German soldiers. Uh, and um, 
and they would that way damn, by extension, the corruption of their leaders and of just and of all, all sorts of people uh, on the home front. In uh, 1930, a German novelist um, playwright, uh, Franz Schellwecker, uh, in his novel with the revealing title, uh, Awakening of the Nation, he did just that, uh, uh, trying to celebrate the ardor of the ordinary Germans who represent the awakening of Germany. Uh, now, he depicted in this book, Aufbruch der Nation, The Awakening of the Nation, the, um, the horrors of Verdun, but he... Um, um, uh, also depicted another struggle, that between the soldiers at the front and the corruption of their superiors and the corruption of people at the rear. I mean, we all know what that means. It means the left, the communists, the socialists, the trade unions, the Jews, and so on, the pacifists, the Democrats, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and so on. Uh, and in fact, to keep in mind the Aufbruch der Nation, the awakening of the, of the nation, here is the medal that was about to commemorate Hitler's coming to power in January 1933, and I don't know if you can see the words, the same words, awakening of the nation. There's a, there's a, there's a connection here. Uh, that same year, so I'll go back to um, 1930, to not this year, 1933, but 1930 uh, itself, um, Josef Magnus Wehner in Sieben vor Verdun, a novel, the seven men before, seven men at Verdun, ein Kriegsroman, a, a, a novel of war, um, he um, deliberately instructs the reader in the beginning, in the, the, what, what is the moral of the story, this novel about Verdun, uh, the double and thus inexorable struggle against the enemy and against the spirit of the old. That's to say the spirit of the old and the de decadent and the corrupt and the rotten and so forth that has destroyed Germany. It's a good thing he added that um, he, spare, he presented this moral of the story because then he spared spared the reader the need to get through this interminable novel. Uh, it's uh, extremely bad, uh, very boring. He actually intended it, and it was received as a reply to Eric Maria, Maria Remarque's All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, which had been published in uh, uh, about the same time, and which was in many ways a pacifist novel. So uh, whether filled with uh, Nazi delirium or not, uh, such works all deny the reality of industrial war. They, they want to deny the war of materiel and celebrate some kind of human spirit uh, somehow um, because industrial war suppresses the hero. Uh, and that hero is the essential figure of, um, of Indo-European warrior mythology for millennia. And in this type of war with its deluge of poison gas and shrapnel and steel, the hero seems not to exist in these different ways they are trying to restore uh, the, uh, the human hero. But that's where we have a problem. Verdun gave rise to very few heroes. As I just said, neither willpower nor determination could prevail against this daily deluge of, uh, of steel and shrapnel and poison gas and so on. The uh, French high command actually acknowledged as much uh, a few weeks before the battle even began in its uh, infantry regulations of January 1916, uh, these, then I quote, these are the words, one does not fight materiel with men. That's simple. Those words, the high command laid to rest, uh, the cult of 1914 and of the infantry offensive à outrance, uh, which uh, artillery is auxiliary and poison gas did not exist. Um, and uh, Falkenhayn uh, implicitly admitted as much 
when he chose to rely heavily on his artillery and really to economize on the uh, use of, uh, of infantry and he even instructed the infantry not to push on if they encountered resistance. You cannot imagine being given such instructions in the, in the, in the, in the late summer of 1914 on either side. Another novel of 1931 by a German, Hans Oeberlein, then this is called Der Glaube an Deutschland, the um, belief in Germany. And this was, a part, part of this is set in Verdun, like all the others, wholly or in part. Uh, he uh, sang of the superiority of the German spirit, uh, the Frontgeist, the spirit of the front. Uh, and he explicitly said this is superior to the war of materiel. And he called it the unequaled myth of the German soldier. Uh, but all that is pointless. The myth of Siegfried, uh, the myth of Napoleonic Elan, uh, that's over. It's finished. Uh, the few heroes that there were uh, incarnated on either side two different kinds of human willpower. Well, a defensive willpower um, among the French and offensive uh, among the Germans. Um, it's the myth of uh, Colonel Drian on the French side who died valiantly in the, early, in the early days of the battle, slowing down the German advance in the woods north of Verdun, and of the two German lieutenants who seized the mightiest fort in France. Uh, the, the Germans chose to celebrate their offensive ardor, and sometimes they spoke of Prussian élan, which allowed them to uh, take this uh, great fort of Douaumont. The, French, the key French words are, they shall not pass. Ils ne passeront pas, on ne passe pas. And those words appear on every retelling of the battle. On the medal struck by the city, you can see the words, on ne passe pas. Uh, on the monument at the top of the hills north of the city, to a particular division that held its ground there, they did not pass. Uh, in the collections of books, one, they shall not pass, and so on. Uh, that is, uh, that's essential to understanding the, the, French underst the French way of talking about this battle. It's defensive. It's a defensive battle. And uh, the Germans, um, uh, it's an act of refusal on the part of the French. The, uh, that's the fundamental uh, French, um, French attitude that turns up in novels and in all kinds of uh, celebrations of this battle. Uh, as I said at the beginning, French chests against German arms. The German is more of the, the offensive élan, the spirit, the, the, uh, the will to attack, the spirit of initiative. Uh, in fact, both are rather misleading. Time doesn't allow me to go into the main stages of this battle, but it's usually divided into uh, two uh, parts, um, one in which the uh, Germans uh, seized ground in the beginning. Uh, this lasted several months before the French returned from August on, pushing them back and regaining most of the ground. Yes, there was a defensive phase, for the, uh, an offensive phase for the Germans and a defensive one for the French. But in fact, the fundamental reality is that both Germans and French fought in just the same way, both defensively and offensively, sometimes changing roles, sometimes fighting both ways at once in endless little changes and uh, savage combats that went on in the ravines, uh, in front of the forts, on the hillsides. Uh, the idea that one side could celebrate offensive battle, the other defensive, is perhaps understandable. It doesn't reflect uh, the realities uh, of this, uh, uh, of, uh, of what went on there. Uh, great losses, uh, in, in fact, one way of looking at that, how else can you explain the casualties two weeks into the battle? They're almost exactly the same on both sides, 25,000 
uh, dead, wounded, or missing on the, among the French, uh, and the same uh, among the Germans. The final myth that I wanted to go into is the myth of enthusiasm. If both sides sought to celebrate willpower of different sorts, uh, the idea that they somehow men somehow enthusiastically went to the battle, this is particularly strong on the French side, that everybody leapt up with one bound to defend the country. Uh, most of this is unreliable. Uh, if the evidence shows anything, it's that the men went up to the line the way they went to work, the way they went to fields and factories because they had to. They even said so. They've been through the letters of the French soldiers, what they wrote home. They would say things like, uh, uh, I, uh, I, go, I, I, I do this because I have no choice. And if the censors use any word in describing the spirit of the morale among the men that they can uh, discern in going through their letters, it's the word morose. These men are not happy about what they're doing. Uh, they're not going up to the line singing. They're doing it because they have to. Now, um, the, um, in fact, and this is where I'll end, the myth of enthusiasm, like that of willpower, rarely comes from the men themselves. They are not the ones who put out these versions of what went on there. Uh, some of them do, but the, real, the ones who really do it are the journalists, the historians, the storytellers, the movie makers, the authors of, of, of school textbooks, all the vehicles uh, that uh, constitute what we call, rightly or wrongly, uh, a public memory. And that is not something to be condemned, because without this, an event of that magnitude would have been absolutely incomprehensible to people at the time. They needed some way to understand what had happened here. Uh, they needed some way to tame uh, the, recent, uh, the recent past. And that is the best way to understand these various versions. Uh, without those, uh, I think, uh, if we didn't have those versions of understanding what happened, uh, we would probably all go mad. Uh, and uh, those are some of the things I wanted to draw your attention to. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.